If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let's open God's Word to Philippians chapter 1. Our reading of God's Word will come from chapter 1, verse 27, and it will go all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. If you're not used to using a Bible, Philippians 1 can be found on page 921 in the Black Pew Bibles. Before I read the text, let's just acknowledge that today is the second Sunday of the month of May, and we call this day Mother's Day. And again, happy Mother's Day to all of you moms. It might mean that for many of you, after you're done being together with this church, you will go and gather with your family. What will that get-together be like? What are your family gatherings like? For some of you, it'll be filled with much love and peace and joy, celebration of life. For others of us, family get-togethers are tense. There's fighting. There's disagreements. There's awkwardness. Several times throughout my life, I've heard other friends, general people in my community say, whenever you get together with mixed company, or maybe if your family suffers from the dysfunctional gatherings that I just referred to, it would be wise to avoid two topics altogether. If you want to have a peaceful Mother's Day with your family, a joy-filled Thanksgiving, or Christmas dinner, so the saying goes, never talk about these two topics. Do you know what they are? Religion and politics. Well, here we are on Mother's Day, filled with mixed company, and the title of this morning's message is The Gospel and Politics. So am I giving you a wonderful gift to blow up your Mother's Day lunch and dinner? Perhaps. Perhaps we're going to fuse these two ideas together, religion and politics. I think it's fair to say I'm not following this age-old advice and wisdom that I've been given. But the reason is not to get your attention, to be edgy, It is not to try and be relevant, and it is certainly not to try and blow up your family dinners today. The reason for this sermon title is because I am convinced this is a good summary of Philippians 1, 27 to chapter 2, verse 18. I might even say, if I were to be a little bit more provocative, I think this is the key main idea of the whole letter of Philippians. What we're about to read from God's word is, I think, one of the primary reasons for the letter itself. That's what I'm hoping to explain to you, apply to you, and encourage you with. That the gospel and politics is very much on the mind of Paul, the writer of a letter to the Philippians. Let's read this text first. Chapter 1, verse 27 all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you 
or am absent. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that you for the that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, guests, visitors, the grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but the word of the Lord that I just read to you, it will endure forever. Amen? big idea of the passage I just read to you, one simple sentence. There is only one political position that will result in unity. There is only one political position that will result in unity. We'll take the sermon title and this big idea and we'll kind of flesh out what I've been trying to say, that the text that I read for you and the letter of Philippians is centered around the gospel 
and a kind of politics, a position of politics that results in unity. So let me recap for all of you. So far, this is the third message in our series called The Gospel and Philippians. Week one, two weeks ago, I argued that this letter was written to thank the Philippian church for their financial partnership in the gospel. That was section one. I am so thankful for our partnership in the gospel. Let me pray for you. Even though I'm in prison, I just want you to know how much I love you and I'm praying for you and I'm thankful for you. That's week one. That's the first section of this letter. Week two, second reason that Paul is writing to them. He is writing to help encourage them about the progress and the power of the gospel. He knows that some of them have been aware because of Epaphroditus coming from their church, coming to him. They have a messenger. They're trying to check in on Paul. Paul, how are you doing? Let us give you more finances, more gifts to help serve you while you are in a really tough spot in life. And if they know, based on Epaphroditus coming back and giving them this letter that they're now reading, Paul's in prison. But he wants them to know, secondly, not just that he's thankful for them, but secondly, that he is okay. The gospel is in good shape, and he, whether he lives or dies, is confident and rejoicing in the gospel. That was last week. So far, I would say everything we've covered so far is mostly introductory kind of things. I'm thankful for you. I just want to give you a quick update. I'm okay. The gospel's okay. The church of Jesus Christ will advance. And even if I die, do not lose heart. I will be with Jesus Christ. And I rejoice for that. Now on to the matters that I would like to address to you all, Philippian church. It's taken a little while. He's a bit wordy, isn't he? We're in verse 27, and he finally gets to what I believe is one of the main reasons for the letter. Reason number three that Philippians exist is to exhort them in unity around the gospel. And he is rooting that unity in political language, which is why this sermon is called The Gospel and Politics. Are you all tracking with me? Philippians so far Starting in verse 27, look down with me and see the gospel and politics. There's a political position that he wants them to have, and it should result in unity in the church. Verse 27, only let, let's pause. There's a lot of verses to cover. We're not going to cover all of them in this kind of detail, but this phrase, only let, some translations put, now just one thing. And that's why I'm telling you I think this is his big idea of the whole letter. This is what's really concerning his heart as a friend, as a pastor, as an evangelist who helped start the church and loves them deeply. We know this from chapter one. My affection for you is like the affection of Jesus Christ. I love these people in Philippi. But he is burdened and concerned in his heart and soul for an issue that has arisen in Philippi. So he says, now just one thing I want to say to you. If I had one encouragement to you all, everything I've said before is just, I'm thankful for you. Here's how I'm doing. Now, how about you all? You see how the tables are now turning? I want you to see that the tables are turning in the letter of Philippians. When you get to verse 27, he's addressing them, commanding them, exhorting them. What is the exhortation? 
that your manner of life would be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pause here. This sums it up. I got one big idea and I'm writing it and Epaphroditus is carrying this letter back to you and when you all read it together, I want it to be emphatically stated, here's my one thing. That your manner of life would be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then notice these little qualifiers, whether I am able to come or I'm absent, whether I live, whether I die. I just want to hear that you all, and notice the unity, you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, and you are together locking arms like soldiers striving side by side for the gospel. Man, this guy loves the gospel. No wonder this sermon series is called The Gospel and Philippians. He's thankful for their partnership in the gospel. He's imprisoned because of the gospel. He wants to encourage them about the advancement of the gospel even while he's in prison. He's telling them of his hope in the gospel. That's all just verses 1 to 26 of chapter 1. Now he's saying, now if I've got one thing to encourage you, I'm going to tell you gospel two more times. That your manner of life would be worthy of the gospel and that you would be side by side for the faith of the gospel. I hope you all are realizing that when I, as your pastor, say to you all, we aim to be a gospel-centered church, we want to center our gatherings around the gospel, we want you and your discipleship relationships and in your community groups that we talked about earlier this morning, they should be centered around the gospel. That's not an idea that I made up. It's not a clever mission slogan or statement from some sort of amazing pastor. This is just rooted in studying the Bible and realizing that if you read carefully, you'll see these people love the gospel. Paul can't stop talking about the gospel. And his encouragement, his one thing, is that their manner of life would be worthy of the gospel and that they would be unified even when there is enemies. Did you notice the enemies in our passage? Not frightened in anything by your opponents, verse 28. Oh, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Opposition to the gospel is a clear sign that you're a Christian and a clear sign that somebody who isn't opposed to the gospel will be judged. I wonder how many of you have thought, I'm struggling with assurance of salvation. Well, let me look. How much opposition do I experience in my Christian life? Ah, there's a sign that I'm a Christian. I think I might try that out next time. Pastor Phil, I'm struggling. Am I a Christian? Well, have you experienced any opposition toward the gospel recently? The Bible says that's a clear sign you are, in fact, a Christian. Isn't this interesting? The Bible thinks differently, and I think it's because the Bible is thinking God's thoughts for us. And God's thoughts are so high and so far above the way you and I think. In fact, this phrase, I want us to unpack it and undergird this big idea. There is one political position that results in unity, and the whole topic can be summarized with the gospel and politics. Many of you will probably see a little number beside the word worthy. A little footnote. Only let your manner of life be worthy. And then if you have an English standard version, there's a little number, a little small eight. Then at the bottom, 
You'll see this fine print, and it says, in the Greek, the word here that's translated, let your manner of life be worthy, that's a mouthful, is one word in Greek. And a more literal translation would be, only behave as citizens worthy. Paul uses a political word, a word that was thrown around a lot in Philippi, where he is writing, because Philippi was a Roman colony of ex-retired soldiers. I've already mentioned two or three times already in this sermon series, standing side by side, firm in the gospel of faith. It's a military term. But yet the kind of battle that they're talking about is not flesh and blood. Not with swords and with human force and power. And the kind of Lord and Master is not Caesar who sits in Rome as they live in a colony that is a representative of the rule of Caesar in Philippi. The man is continually using words and concepts that would have related to his audience. I think he's actually being subversive by that he's taking concepts that would have been normally attached and attributed to the political system of that day and the the bowing down and giving allegiance to the Roman emperor, but instead attaching those phrases to Jesus Christ. Only behave as faithful citizens of the Roman Empire? You won't find that anywhere in Philippians. What you will find is be a faithful citizen of the gospel because Jesus Christ is your Lord. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now for some of you you might be like, okay, okay, okay. But it's more. Number one, what I just referenced to you in the middle of Philippians, turn to chapter two, notice verse 11, 10 and 11. So at the name of Jesus, every knee bow. Doesn't that sound like you're bowing down to a king when you're giving allegiance, confessing with your tongue that he is Lord? If you knew anything about the Roman Empire, you would know that a colony like Philippi, where these people live, they would be bombarded with messages of you should bow to Caesar, who is Lord. Kurios, same exact word that's used here in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. He is undermining the political concept and worldview of the Philippians. There is one emperor that rules. There is one supreme court, to use an American term, who sits as judge over the heavens and the earth. There is one president of the United States who really reigns and governs over all of this land. And your allegiance should be supremely to Jesus Christ as you bow before him and as your tongue confesses that he is Kurios, Lord. Oh, but there's more. Did you know that Caesar Augustus, when he would become, you know, whichever emperor, took the throne, he would send out messengers all over the different colonies like Philippi. And the messenger would go and they would say, I have an announcement. I would like everyone in the community to gather. And so all of the people, they gather. They don't have internet. They don't have TVs. They have one way to uh, give announcements. They're called heralds, messengers. 
Gospelers is actually the technical word. Gospelers. Like a noun, people who go and herald a message. So I want you to imagine that at one point, Philippi and the people living there who are reading this letter are accustomed to hearing, Hear ye, hear ye, all people of Philippi. There is an announcement that comes from Rome. There is a new Caesar who has taken the throne, and he is the savior of the world. He is Lord over the Roman Empire, the known world. I am not making this up. This is inscribed on coins. This is rooted throughout the Roman Empire. Caesar was called God. He was a man who sat on a throne and was equal with the gods of the heavens. He was called Lord. He was called Savior. And the guys that went around from town to town telling these announcements, they were called evangelists. Because they announced the good news of the emperor who's now on the throne that's going to save everybody and make the Roman Empire full of the Pax Romana peace. Are you all starting to get the political dynamite that Paul is using in these little breadcrumbs of very loaded words? It's all through Philippians. Let me give you one more example in Philippians itself, not just the broader culture. If you turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, you'll notice that in verse 20, he uses the same exact word, in noun form that he used in verb form in 127. So these are the exact same words, just one's a noun, a person, place or thing, and the other is a verb, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Are you noticing that Paul would like to use citizenship language? In the Greek language, you, you could hear this. You don't need to know Greek. The word is polis or polite. It's the word we get politics from. So I'm not trying to be coy or cute. That's the actual words he's using. He's telling them, I would like you to live a political way of life, a sort of citizenship, but that is ultimately directed to allegiance to Jesus Christ, your king, your lord, your master, and it is not the Roman emperor. That's the big idea. Now, why? Why is he saying this? Why is he demanding unity? Perhaps maybe there's disunity. Ah, great question. I'm glad you asked. If you have your Bible still in chapter 3, right at the end, now look at the beginning of chapter 4, and you will notice that there is division in the church. Chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now you have reason number three that Philippians exists. Hopefully as clear as day, this letter was given to the church in Philippi and now a gift to you and me. When division comes into a church, that is not because of the gospel, but secondary to the gospel. He is encouraging two 
is specific women, the details of which we do not have or know. I will not speculate, nor do I think you should. But what's clear is that they're in disagreement. And that that disagreement is not about the gospel. He is encouraging them to agree on the basis of the gospel. Now go back to chapter 1. And in light of this context, I think it should be really clear why his big idea is. Only let your citizenship of heaven be worthy of living out the ethics of the gospel of Christ. That's verse 27 now. If I could add a few words, explain it more fully. If I have one thing to say to you, church, it's that the divisions I'm hearing about that are uprising in the church, I would love to see agreement because the gospel is too important for us to divide over lesser matters. I want you side by side for the faith of the gospel. One mind, one spirit for the good advancement of Jesus Christ. And don't be afraid of any kind of opposition. You might start thinking, oh, maybe because of opposition and persecution, one of them is like, no, 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 we shouldn't do this. And another person saying, no, no, we should do that. Paul's encouraging them to be bold and stand firm and realize that your salvation is actually being confirmed that you're preaching this very controversial, controversial message called the gospel. I mean, guys, do, do, you, do you look around? and see that there's controversy that arises and opposition when you take a stand on the Bible? If half of what I'm saying is true about the Roman Empire and Philippi, if you go around and start declaring that Jesus Christ is the emperor supreme, you go to prison for that. Where's Paul writing from again? Oh yeah, prison. I don't want to go to prison, do you? No, no, maybe we should compromise. Stand firm. One mind. One allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. In fact, this will be a sign that you're actually a Christian. And don't worry about those opponents. Even if they kill you, God will judge them in the end. Is it any different today? Is there opposition to the gospel today in Palatine and the United States of America? Freedom of religion? A land where we can believe what we want, preach what we want. You have your truth, I have my truth. Or is it still the same, that there are opponents? What if, when we start making a stand for the Bible, we will have the same kind of destruction? I want to read for you this quote from one of the commentators I read. I thought this was just so helpful. He says, what will happen if we declare that Jesus Christ is king over the whole world today? And that every single human that exists on the face of planet Earth must bow before him. Do you think that that will make anybody unhappy? What if we tell world rulers, government officials, that their authority is fading? That it doesn't last? That there is a king who is the real ruler and that they are no more than mere puppets in the hands of the sovereign king? What if we tell anyone that tries to use violence or verbal attacks to get their way, that Jesus Christ is king over all of heaven and earth, and he commands us to resolve conflict in a radically different way in our Mother's Day gatherings. I added that Mother's Day part. Back to the quote. What if we tell people, and this is is the quote, what if we tell people that God created man, male and female, That God joins them together in marriage and that no man should ever separate what God has joined 
together. Last little question from this quote. What if we call people to use their bodies in a way that honors God and that we do not have rights over our bodies because we were bought by Jesus, that he owns us and that we are to be his servants and to use our bodies as an instrument of righteousness to serve others? So I ask you, what issues will come up in our community and what opposition will arise if we stand firm in the faith of the gospel and live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will we too face opposition and will we need to maintain a oneness of mind, unity, side by side? That's just the first three verses of our text, 27, 28. 29 and 30. Notice the theme of unity continues. If there were no chapter breaks and you just kept reading, look at with me at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Pause. The kind of political life you should live as a citizen of heaven just got explained to you from Paul. You know that he's asking you to live as a worthy citizen of the gospel in the everyday life here today, May 8th, 2022, Mother's Day. The kind of politics that you and I should live will be determined by our citizenship of what kind of king that we give allegiance to. There is an important relationship between your citizenship and your conduct, your identity, and your behavior. It is not, if you live a certain way, then you will go to heaven. Oh, by no means should you leave today and think that is the Christian faith. The identity of the person who is a citizen of heaven is purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ as he left heaven. As verses 6 to 9 tell us, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, exploited, stolen, but rather he expressed and emptied himself in humility, becoming a servant. The king became a servant. Why? For you and me to be unified around his lordship and king because when the God of the universe expresses his godness in humility in the person of Jesus Christ, the Father in heaven looks at that behavior and says, yes, that is worthy of praise. That is worthy of exaltation and lifting up. That should then govern the politics of the citizens of heaven. Let me put it very practically. You all are coming to a church, the name of which is called Embassy Church. 
Now, we did not specifically get this name just from Philippians, but it fits really well, doesn't it? The Bible teaches here in Philippians and elsewhere that Jesus Christ is King, Lord, and Ruler. That our ultimate allegiance should be to swear with our tongues, confess and bow down with our lives and our knees that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And anyone who declares that Christ is their Lord is doing so by the power of the Holy Spirit as they've heard the good news that Christ paid the penalty by dying on the cross for sins. Humbled himself and therefore that spirit-empowered life not only declares him Lord but bows down and says, yes, Lord, I will live the way you have illustrated and given us as an example and then I will obey your commands. And on the basis of the free gift of salvation, I now live as a citizen. I now have a new identity. Do you understand the difference between earning your way into a family, trying to earn the love of a father, and being adopted and born into a family? Do you realize that the Christian gospel tells you fundamentally that you are born again into a new family? as citizens of a new kind of kingdom so that you can represent as ambassadors the kingdom of heaven and your King Jesus Christ. But what does that look like very practically here at Embassy Church? What does it look like for you to be a worthy citizen? Let me give you a story that I just heard a couple weeks ago from a good friend of mine. He pastors in Louisville. He was preaching on this text. He was trying to explain to everybody, hey, here's what it looks like when people consider others more important than themselves. And I thought this was relevant. It's Mother's Day. Here's the story. Guy's pastoring in Louisville, Kentucky. He's got two couples. Both of them have no children. Both of them have been married for a while. Both of them want children badly and have not been able to have children. These two couples, on the basis of their infertility and the longings to have children, ended up forming a bond, sharing in their sufferings together. And Pastor Greg said this. He said, I think when we covenant together as a church to bear one another's burdens and sorrows, that all of us relate with that. It's not always easy, but it's easier than rejoicing with each other's joys. We don't just weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Have you ever found that difficulty like this couple did when they're gathered together for a Sunday night prayer meeting? And up comes this young married couple to give the announcement, praise God, we're pregnant. Greg says, as soon as that announcement went out, there was an immediate joy because of the prayers and the longing and the joy to say, yes. And then there was immediate, oh no. What about their best friends? Everybody knows how close they are. Both of these people have been praying for this and the whole church has known about it for years. Joy, sorrow for the sting of not having the thing that that other person just got. Have you ever felt this before? The difficulty to rejoice with those who rejoice. Pastor Greg said that aware and sensitive of the matter, as they often do when somebody says that they're pregnant, 
let's ask for someone in the church at the prayer meeting. There's a prayer meeting. Let's pray for God to keep the baby healthy and for them to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so he started looking around, and then he called on someone to pray. In the corner of his eye, the other couple, the husband, starts going like this. I want to pray for them. I want to rejoice and praise God that they now have a baby in the womb, and I want to pray for the baby's protection, and I want to pray for a blessing on this family. Greg said it was the most tear-filled, powerful prayer he's ever heard in his life. Brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, this is citizenship of the kingdom of heaven that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that looks at your Lord and says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited and grasped, but rather would serve others and their interests above his own. Therefore, he humbled himself and became a servant, not just a human, a servant. The king becomes a slave. The worthy one becomes disgraced. The loved one becomes hated. The beautiful one becomes ugly. The accepted one becomes rejected. The one who's on the inner circle of the Trinity becomes sent out. And on the basis of his example and his substitutionary life and death and his incarnation and his perfect sinless life, he dies on a cross. Oh, even death on a cross. The most humiliating, the most excruciatory kind of death that one could have died. And because of that, verse 9 says, therefore, therefore, he has been highly exalted and he has been given a name above all other names and that at that name, Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is the Lord, emperor, ruler, king in heaven and on earth, oh, and even under the earth. It's just a little Jewish way of saying everything that exists, the heavens and the earth and all that's above and below. There is not one soul on the planet. There is not one person that's ever lived that will not at one point acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, number two. Therefore, verse 12. Therefore, on the basis of the death of Christ, Jesus was raised and vindicated and given a seat of honor. Therefore, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, verse 12 says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I said this two weeks ago. I'll say it again. Do not work for your salvation. Do not try and be the son or daughter that has this emptiness in their soul and longs to have mom and dad fill that emptiness by trying to meet their approval. That's not what God the Father is like. You do not work for approval from him. It is granted to you, verse 28, chapter 1. It has been granted to you to believe. This salvation is confirmed when there is opponents, and that salvation is from God, a gift. Therefore, work it out with fear and trembling. Live out the implications of your citizenship now that you're a citizen of a new king and a new kingdom that lasts forever and ever. And do it by being of one mind about the way we treat others in the church or in our family. Their preferences more than yours. Considering others more important than ourselves just like Jesus did. That's true politics that unites together. That's ultimate political positions 
that actually will bring people together that wouldn't be brought together otherwise. You all don't know each other, but I know a lot of you. And I know some of you, you lean a little bit right or left, politically speaking. You think masks should be on. You think masks should not be on. Some of you have been vaccinated. Some of you have not been vaccinated. That's just the last year or two. We had these issues of division potentially dividing a church prior to 2020. There's issues in the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago where two ladies need to agree together because of their Lord Jesus Christ and consider others more important than themselves like Jesus did for them. That's a life that's worthy of the gospel, living out their salvation, working it out. When I first taught this passage, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, I had this picture in my mind, and I want to share it with you because I just find it helpful. The difference between working for your salvation and working out your salvation is like you got a dead tree in your backyard and you need to cut it down, and you've got a chainsaw with no gas in it. It's kind of heavy, chainsaws, some of them kind of big, heavy chainsaw. I want you to imagine taking a big, heavy chainsaw, no gas in it, and you just kind of go like this, you know? Rub the chainsaw on your own effort to try and cut down this big oak tree. Do you all see the futility in that? Philippians 2, 12 to 14, is telling you that God Almighty is working in you for his good pleasure So that you can become all the things that verses 14 to 18 say, innocent, holy, shining like stars in the heavens, blameless. That happens on the basis of putting the gas of the gospel in the chainsaw, revving up that engine and realizing, oh, I can become more holy and cut down some trees. That's the difference. It's a fundamental difference. There's a way of living and cutting down trees. One has no power of the Holy Spirit on the basis of God's incredible love towards you who considered you more important than himself and therefore died on the cross for your sins. Have you ever let the gasoline of the gospel empower your selflessness and your view of supreme politics that Jesus Christ is Lord and I will obey him in the power of the Holy Spirit as God works in me. I work out the salvation by reminding myself of the gospel. Isn't that what he's doing to the Philippians? Right here in the center of the letter. I want your lives to be worthy of the gospel, so let me remind you of the gospel, so therefore you can work out the gospel. Brothers and sisters, embassy church members, citizens of heaven, I hope and pray that all throughout today and this week, You will be spirit-empowered citizens of heaven who will walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, confessing Christ as your king and confessing and living out with your life that Jesus Christ is your Lord. Guests, visitors, welcome. Some of you maybe are Christians and have repented of your sin and called Christ your Lord. Praise God. I'm glad you're here with us today. But if you have never considered the claim of the Christian message that there is a Lord not in our imaginations but a real human being a man a God-man who sacrificially gave of himself because of his love for you 
that kind of gasoline in your heart could fuel a different way of living, not toward vain glory, but Christ glory. That's that word conceit, not selfish ambition. What's driving my motor of my heart and my days is not the ambitions of myself or my goals and my dreams, but it is for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to repent of your sin. Confess now before it's too late. Before you find yourself under the earth and in the grave. And judged by God for rejecting this message. So just like in Philippi, there would have been a herald that comes around. Well, that's my job. Pastors are like those first century heralds. And they go around to little communities of people, and they say, hear ye, hear ye, everyone. I have a a good news. I have a gospel to announce. Someone's taken the throne. It's good news for you. He's benevolent. He's good. He's not just king. He's a good king. Bow before him and live out the implications of his kingdom ethics as explained through the entire New Testament, but especially let's just start with chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Have you found any encouragement of this fellowship, of this teaching, of the Holy Spirit? Well, if you have, consider others more significant than yourselves. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, we have come today to swear allegiance to Christ and him alone. And we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that our hard, rebellious, sinful hearts do not naturally gravitate toward giving glory to someone else. We are glory thieves by nature. And so we confess that we desperately need your Holy Spirit to work out the salvation of the gospel in our hearts, in our church, and unite us together with one mind, no matter what the opposition may be that we face. So I want to pray for my brothers and sisters of the membership of Embassy Church as we gather next Sunday morning for our members meeting. I pray that we would be of the same mind about who our Lord is and what he has commanded of us in his word, and that we would be accountable to one another by faithfully serving one another, Father, I want to pray for mothers and want to be mothers, that we would rejoice with the joy of those who have the privilege of motherhood, and that we would weep with those who are unable to weep or who are unable to have motherhood and are weeping in their hearts. Lord, we want to pray for those that have lost moms. I especially pray for my family, as this being our first Mother's Day without our mom. Lord, I pray that you would just bring such comfort on those that are grieving deeply today, missing moms, and that we as a church family would have the kind of compassion and empathy that is displayed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We'd care for one another in these kind of ways, just normal, everyday little ways and big ways too. We wouldn't get married to someone that's not a Christian because our God and our Lord is Jesus Christ. That we would not get divorced unlawfully that we would live in a life that's worthy of the gospel and stick by the teaching of Scripture, standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. So, Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted. Afflict us when we need to be afflicted and comfort us in our afflictions. 
and use the teaching of God's word to bring great blessing and building up of your church. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.